1: Welcome to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Bill Scher. Uh, today on the show, we have the Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, David Farris, who wrote the new book, It's Time to Fight Dirty How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. David, thanks for being on.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on the show.
1: So uh this is a I, I feel like a perennial debate among Democrats, you know, how you know, do we do we go low or go high? Uh <laughs> I I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary feed, which was of the 1992 primary in New Hampshire, and this is after Dukakis got whooped. Um, a little <laughs> old lady goes up to Paul Songas and says, You're a nice man, but I need to know, <laughs> you know, can you be nasty? <laughs> And uh, Paul Saggas in his super dreamy voice is like, I give me nasty,
0: um, <laughs> not convincing. Yeah. Right, right.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, after eight years of Obama, uh, where you know some say he went high, um, but you talk to some Republicans, they'd say Obama went low. So what, what do you feel like? Over the past decade, Democrats have been too nice?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that what's been happening is less about <clears throat> what Obama did or didn't do and more about like sort of Republicans manipulating procedural rules to benefit themselves, you know, like the passing these voter ID laws or or the sort of really extreme gerrymandering that happened after 2010. I mean, I, I think that one of the criticisms of the early Obama administration goes something like, you know, it took him too long to figure out that Republicans were never going to work with him, you know, uh, so he kind of, you know, held out his hand for a couple of years, um, and then finally realized that it was never going to happen. Um, so to the extent that, uh, Democrats need to realize uh, that they're going to have to make policy alone, that they're not going to get any help from Republicans and that they need to kind of push the boundaries of what's possible and what's legal. Yeah. I mean, I think that they need to get smarter and, you know, if we want to call it dirtier then yeah, they need to get dirtier.
1: So. So, what do you mean by "dirty"? I mean, I mean, there's there's dirty and there's dirty. There's dirty like John McCain <laughs> has an illegitimate child. Dirty, right, uh, right? And there's dirty bad, I'm not going to compromise on your spending bill. Dirty.
0: Yeah, I'd say more the latter. You know, uh, so I'm not talking about like Willie Horton dirty. Um, I'm not talking about lying about about other people. Um, I'm really talking about um, using the Democrats' institutional power um, to do things that are perfectly legal that are allowed by the Constitution, but that would cause, uh, you know, some consternation among people that think that norms are valuable and and essential for a functioning democracy. Um, So I'm talking about things like they should eliminate the filibuster on, you know, one of their first orders of business if they ever have unified control of D.C. again. Um, Because if they don't do that, they're not going to get anything done. Um, I'm talking about things like uh, changing the way we vote for the House of Representatives. Um, And, you know, over the next couple of years, obviously I'm talking about Um, not cooperating with with the president and with the the congressional GOP unless it's absolutely necessary. You know, a a really good example of not fighting dirty um, is is Senate Democrats cooperating with Republicans to to gut Dodd-Frank last month. Um, And uh, that was just, you know, completely unnecessary for them to do that. They also didn't get anything in return, you know. So while we're in the minority, fighting dirty means um, really being careful about, uh, about collaboration with with Trump and his allies. Once we get into the majority, um, it really means uh, you know rethinking some of these normative things that we're so attached to, to sort of level the, the playing field electorally. Because I think Democrats really at this point are starting out every national election at a, at a massive disadvantage because of some of these uh, structural obstacles they face.
1: Now you mentioned this this uh, this recent uh, uh, Dodd Frank partial rollback that some Sen Democrats uh, voted for. Um, is is that would you say that is the the norm of the Democratic Party today? Or I mean, some might say Democrats have been pretty obstructionist in the in the Trump era. They gave them no votes on the tax bill. No, they they couldn't do the full Obama repeal they wanted because Democrats uh, held out. Congress has mostly been pretty stagnant <laughs> over the past eighteen months. Um, yeah, uh, and the only thing they got done was through uh, the reconciliation process because that circumvents the filibuster. When they need sixty, Democrats have been in arms fairly tightly. Um, but do you think that even even the, the Dover thing enough? That that's enough to say, look, you guys are being too nice.
0: No, I mean, I, I think I mean, I think you're right for the most part. I think that Democrats have kept the caucus together for the most critical votes. Um, so you know the, the the feat of keeping everyone on board during the healthcare fight, um, there's a, you know we really need to credit the the Democratic leadership with uh, with doing that because that was really important and they hung together for the for a tax reform too. I mean they lost but they they kept the caucus together. Um, and so I think that much more so than you know four or eight years ago, I think members of the party are willing to uh, to take firm stances and to stick to them. Uh, but there are still exceptions. You know I think that the I think the sort of default uh, mode of, of, of Democrats, mainstream Democrats, is like, you know, even if Republicans are running the country, if there's a policy proposal and, and we're like, well, you know, it's actually kind of a good idea, we should sign on to it. Um, I, I still think that's the default operating mode of the party right now.
1: Well, they, 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 they probably would have done that with infrastructure if Republicans got their own act together and put infrastructure bill on the floor. Democrats probably would have voted for some version of that.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, it, it's just it's mind boggling how much more political pressure um, the president could have put on Democrats by doing some of the things that he said he would do during the campaign. Um, so infrastructure is a really good example of that. Um, you know, offering some kind of real healthcare reform that, you know, that would actually have preserved Medicaid and Medicare or put put Democrats in a difficult position politically would have been a much smarter move than what they actually did. Um, but it's like, you know, I mean, if you remember back to right before Trump took office, there was this debate in the party that was like, you know, do we cooperate or do we do we be obstructionists? Um, and that debate was predicated on on the idea that Trump might give us something to, to think hard about. Uh, that there might be policies that would be, you know, on balance good for the country, might have some trade-offs, tradeoffs, um, but that they could split the Democratic coalition by by offering some of these things. And they, they never really did that. You know, I mean, they've governed. Uh, all of the policy proposals have been these like super hard right, uh, you know, uh, Heritage Foundation proposals about tax law and and. and uh, a medical system, um, and so I think for the most part they've never really had to face that choice. Um, but the banking bill, you know, the Dodd Frank rollback—that is a case where I, I don't understand why 17 Democrats got on board with this thing. I mean, they could have released uh, Heitkamp and, and Mansion and, and McCaskill and still defeated it, you know, without exposing you know these these red state Democrats who are up for election this year, without exposing them to, to the political fallout from it. So it's like. Uh, it's just it's kind of mind boggling because they also didn't extract anything from Republicans for, for that vote. So that's frustrating.
1: <laughs> so where it might get more complicated um, is, let's say, Democrats take the House in uh, November 2018, sworn in January 2019, maybe even take the Senate. Um, let's say Trump pivots and says, okay, now is the time to do an infrastructure bill. I I don't, you know, I don't got Paul Ryan whining in my ear. Uh, Now here's my chance to prove I'm I'm truly transpartisan and I can can do what's good for the country. Uh, Are you saying that even if it is a reasonably okay compromise, not everything Democrats want, of course, but a a true blue middle of the road, you got some real infrastructure dollars here. Should Democrats still say no because it's just good politics to deny Trump the win, as Mitch McConnell proved versus Obama in the in the last eight years.
0: Well, yeah, I mean that'll be a much trickier that'll be a much trickier thing to navigate. I mean, I think that you know the record of the last thirty years shows pretty clearly um, that when Congress and the president are working together <laughs> functionally, it makes the president look good. It'll it'll boost his his polling numbers um and that's a lesson i think that we've learned over and over again um in the 90s and and during the bush administration and during the obama administration so you know democrats may have to to make some difficult choices uh if they take both houses of congress and then president trump like performs some sort of magical alteration to his personality and governing philosophy and is willing to sign to sign some bills but i think uh I, i really think they ought to you know stick to the maximal demands that they can make on a bill, like an infrastructure bill, you know, Um, because if they run the house and they run the Senate, they're not really obligated to bring uh, congressional Republicans into these discussions. So they should pass a democratic bill and then dare Trump to sign it, you know? Um, And if he says no, then he says no. And we don't, you know, we don't get the the infrastructure bill. I think there are a couple of cases where I would bend on that. And that'd be like, you know, for the dreamers, um, if something really seriously goes wrong with the healthcare system, it it needs to be fixed. You know, like policies that would save people, um, I think are worth bending for. Something like infrastructure, you know, honestly, that can wait until 2021, um, and I'd be reluctant. I'd be reluctant to pursue a true sort of like down the middle compromise on that um, in, in 2019 and 2020.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier that once Democrats get in power, they should scrap the filibuster altogether. Uh, and so, uh, you look at the past several years. Um, you know, back in the Bush years, Republicans threatened a nuclear option to appoint judges. And then because there was this uh, a gang, of, I think it was a gang of 14 at the time, they were not able to take it that far. And they had a deal to give Bush a good number of his judges. Then Democrats get in power. Obama's president. There's a lot of obstruction on judges. Finally, Obama and Reid say, no moss. We're going to remove the filibuster for lower court judges. They get a bunch of judges through. Obama catches up to where George Bush was as far as total number of judges appointed. Then Trump gets in. McConnell says, okay, let's now extend that termination of the filibuster for Supreme Court judges. So that gives us Neil Gorsuch. Uh, so we've already had this escalation over time. Uh, if Democrats then go the final leg when they're in power, now we're going to get rid of the legislative filibuster. Does that mean Democrats get the advantage or is it just mean that over time this pendulum's going to swing back and forth and whoever's in charge gets to ram all their stuff through and it's all a wash?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I like to st- take a step back from the filibuster and, and look at it comparatively um, and ask why we have a super majoritarian decision rule to pass routine national legislation, uh, really unlike any other country in the world. Um, I, I think it doesn't make any sense from a, like a small d democratic perspective to require 60 votes in a a 100 person legislature um, to get routine business passed for the people. Um, So I have thought that for a long time uh, during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration. I think one of the things that it does is it, 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 you know, voters will sometimes send unified governments into D.C. Um, only to find that they can't pursue their policy proposals because they need more votes than they have in the Senate, even though they have a majority. So I think it causes sort of a corrosive cynicism about our system of government because people, you know, they're like, well, you know, in in this case, it's like, hey, Republicans won this election, you know, uh, not in an ideal fashion in terms of our underlying institutions, but they won. Um, and so why can't they go to DC and make policy? Like, why do they need, um, you know, why do they need nine Democrats to do anything in the Senate? Um, the, the second reason I think we have to do this um, is because, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's be in fantasy land for a second. Um, you know, we win, we win the house in 2018, then we win the Senate and the presidency in 2020. It's January, 2021. We have like, I don't know, 55 seats in the Senate. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine getting to 60, right? Uh, even if everything goes right. Um, and then what do we do with those? Well, I mean, yeah, That's a mathematical
1: possibility with this one midterm alone. You couldn't get to yeah, 60 yeah. uh, just Yeah, there.
0: it's not going to happen. So. You know, we, we have to govern with 55 Democrats in the Senate. Uh, if you don't do away with the filibuster, that means you're going to need some Republicans to get on board with whatever it is that you want to do. Um, and I think that they proved pretty conclusively during the Obama administration that they're not going to provide those five votes, um, even if it's something really they couldn't get a single Republican to vote for the ACA. Uh, Even though that bill was itself a kind of a compromise, um, a sort of a bipartisan, you know, it's a bipartisan compromise bill. Uh, It did a lot of good, but it was also, it wasn't like a hard left proposal, you know. Um, And if you think about what it would take to get even to a majority in the Senate, it means eliminating some of the so-called moderates in the Republican caucus. So the idea that like the Republican Party circa 2021 is going to be chastened or is going to be dominated by people like John Kasich is just, to me, it's like farcical, right? Like it's never going to happen. So if we don't want to get swept right back out of power um two years later we we have to govern like we have to do some of the things that we promised the voters that we would do um and I just don't see a way I just don't see a, re- a way around it um unless we only want to do two you know one thing a year through reconciliation um I think Republicans are proving right now that that's you know that's not enough that's not that's not enough achievements to show to voters that you're actually getting things done.
1: So what do you make of the the counter argument that we have unified Republican government right now uh Arguably not truly reflective of the public opinion of the country because of the electoral college and gerrymandering and the way the Senate is constructed. Uh, having that minority filibuster has helped Democrats prevent Republicans from ramming through a whole bunch of stuff that the majority of the public really doesn't want. Uh, so, it, what, it, it, what do you make of that trade off? I mean, it's true Democrats can't get all they want when they get in power the way it's constructed, but what, what do you make of the upside of what happens when you're in the minority?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is why the filibuster has survived for so long, because both parties see it as a hedge on on sort of total domination by their adversaries once they get back into power. Um, and, and the reason I think that we need to change that, uh, there's a few reasons. Um, one is obviously Republicans, um, I don't think, represent a majority of Americans right now, as you point out. It's not just the Electoral College, it's malapportionment in the Senate, it's uh, gerrymandering and partisan sorting. Uh, and, and so they're in a lot of ways, the governance is is somewhat illegitimate. But, you know, according to the institutions that we have put into place, you know, they they rightfully took their place as the majority, uh, you know, took the presidency in both houses of Congress under the rules that we have set up at the moment. Um, And I think if we're going to do away with the filibuster, it's also really important um, to change some of those rules. (laughs) Um, That is to add more state, you know, add more states to the union um, so that Democrats don't have the structural disadvantage in the Senate. Um, You know, pass a reform for how we, elect the House of Representatives, so that we can't have this disjuncture again, like we had in 2012, where Democrats won the National House vote, but but lost the chamber to Republicans. Um, so if you eliminate the filibuster, and then you fix some of the underlying problems with representative democracy in this country, all of which are perfectly constitutional, um, you know, A, you can govern and pass the policies you said you would pass, and B, you make it much more likely that that you'll win re-election in 2022 and 2024, because we'll have, we'll have fixed some of the underlying uh, deficits that Democrats face in this system. So I think they both have to be done at the same time. If we eliminate the filibuster and then we don't address any of these other problems, uh, yeah, I don't think that's a great idea. <laughs> um, so that's why, that's why the book really recommends that we do, you know, we have to do all of this at once. Not on day one, because we know that nothing happens on day one, but, you know.
1: <laughs> now, you, you mentioned that just there in passing, but one of the more audacious proposals in the book is that when Democrats come in power, they should not only make Washington, D.C. a state, they should not only make Puerto Rico a state, they should divide California into seven states which and make the America 58 state Union which would greatly expand in all so long as these places remain democratic areas uh, make uh, f- fix an imbalance that's currently in the Senate where uh, less populated red America has outside influence uh, In the in Congress, uh, can you elaborate a little more about what is your thinking behind that strategy?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I woke up after the 2016 election, and I was just, I was like despondent. You know, I mean, I, I was like, well, maybe we can get power back in 2018, and then I looked at the Senate map, and uh, that was depressing. Um, and it sort of got me to thinking about the the sort of structural deficit that Democrats face in the U.S. Senate, because you know, the 38 million people of California have the same two senators as the 700,000 people in Wyoming. It's it's, it's really it's, I don't think that the framers could have envisioned like this sort of runaway inequality between the populations of the states. Um, and so that's, that's a huge problem because voters in California have have much less structural power in American politics than, than the voters in Wyoming or Nebraska or Vermont, you know, than, than they have too. Um, and so there was a great piece on 538 about this a couple of weeks ago, but it was, uh, you know, there's probably 31 Republican leaning states in the country and 19 Democratic leading states, you know, maybe it's 30, 20, if we're being generous. Um, but in a, in a neutral, partisan environment, that means uh, Republicans are going to win the Senate much more often than they don't uh, if we don't change this. Um, and that's going to make it very, very difficult to make any kind of lasting sort of progressive change in this country if we're constantly losing one of the branches of government that you need to make policy. Um, and, you know, there's nothing stopping us from adding states. Uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico, I think, are pretty low hanging fruit. You know, they, they both voted in, in referendums to to join the union. Uh, I think we saw over the past year the consequences of, of no one having to answer to Puerto Ricans for the things that we do to them, um, and uh, I think it's, it's probably greatly enhanced uh, sentiment on the island to join to join the union rather than to, to be independent. Um, you know, it's, it's absurd that people in Washington D.C. don't have voting representation in Congress. Uh, I don't, I, I can't possibly fathom the, the justification for that from, from a democratic theoretical perspective. So it's the right thing to do, um, and it's easy. Uh, I, I like to say, if, if D.C. and Puerto Rico were states, uh, we would hold the Senate right now. We could, uh, we could stop anything that the Trump administration wants to do, except banking reform, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, like if this had been the case uh, 18 years ago, George W. Bush would not have been president. So, you know, I, I think um, there's, there's really important reasons for why we should make D.C. and Puerto Rico states, but it doesn't get us all the way there. You know, then it's 30-24. Um, and so you know, there's a, there's a procedure for how you can break up an existing state in the constitution. Um, and that's, uh, it requires an act of the state legislature, um, and then an act of Congress. And I think, um, this isn't called for in the constitution, but I think we obviously need the the consent of the people of California to do this. So there'd need to be a ballot initiative that that endorses this idea. And then, and then the California legislature does it. Uh, and then, and then Congress kind of finishes the job. Um, so obviously, that's a project you know that's going to take years um, if it's to be successful. So it's not it's not a DC and Puerto Rico are like something you could do in the first six months of the next Democratic administration. You know, breaking up California is going to take time because <laughs> it'll be complicated too.
1: Well, but the DC and Puerto Rico you can argue is not a crass political play for power that you have people in these areas who are not fully enfranchised where other people are. Breaking up in California is a whole different argument because they are they are they are all currently enfranchised. What? what how do you deal with? I mean, obviously, it's a long term project, but you know, teasing this out, if you're going to do it, obviously, you'll be criticized for uh, a crass political grab. What do you think is the strategy for dealing with that kind of backlash?
0: Um, I, you know, I think another unfortunate thing we've learned over the last eight years um, is that there's really not that steep of a price to pay for for making partisan hardball moves i mean when when republicans said that they were not going to fill uh seat you know they weren't going to consider merrick garland uh i was you know sitting in my living room watching tv and i was like man surely surely in november the republican party will pay a price for this right like this is the the merrick garland thing was the most hardball thing i've ever seen in politics um and i was like you know the voters will remember they will remember and they didn't. <laughs> uh, the Republicans paid no price uh, for doing what I think was the most transgressive, most hardball political maneuver in modern American history. Um, and so I'm less concerned about backlash um, if we break up California than I am about convincing Californians that this is in their interest in the first place. Um, because if they endorse if the people of California endorse this idea, you know, I don't know what, you know, what could Republicans say in, in response? Like 38 million people just voted to, to play partisan hardball. you know if they did, if that's what they want, then that's what they want. You know, I think, I think the bigger lift is like, when I talk to people from California about this idea, you know, it's, you know, uh, the best case scenario is I met with some puzzlement, you know, so it's, uh, it's something that, that will require a lot of, uh, a lot of persuasion <laughs> over time, but I'm definitely less worried about the backlash than I am about the, the underlying persuasion that's necessary to get it in the first place.
1: We're talking to David Farris, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics um, on the New Books and Politics Podcast here on the New Books Network. Uh, Something else you propose in the book uh, is ending lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. What's your thinking behind that?
0: Well, I mean, I think that the lifetime tenure on the courts is, I think, like, um, the wellspring from which flows all of the poisonous battles uh, over the, over the courts, you know, uh, that's why we have, you know, 49 year olds being appointed to the Supreme court um, when we get just as easily appoint a, a, you know, somebody in their late fifties or early sixties who's a, a more seasoned justice. Um, and the, the life the, the fact that the justices on the Supreme court get lifetime tenure means, and it's true um, that that is an, an enormously consequential sort of long-term decision uh, whereby the president will be able to influence public policy in his or her direction long after they leave office. Um, and so both parties, I think, have now correctly perceived the stakes of these appointments as as incredibly high because vacancies on the court are a lottery. Um, you know, it's, it requires a justice to step down or to die. Uh, and that means that not everybody gets to appoint a justice to the Supreme Court. You know i think a lot of people on the left assume that we could take the supreme court back if we win in 2020 um but there's uh, there's absolutely no guarantee um that there'll be an opening you know jimmy carter didn't get to appoint anybody to the supreme court uh ronald reagan got three um and so it really depends on circumstances that are beyond the control of the president uh his or herself so um i think eliminating lifetime tenure on, on the federal judiciary would, would would be magical you know it would uh, there's a law proposed by a group called Fix the Court, um, and that law would give every president the right to nominate two justices uh, for every four-year term in office. Um, and so that you know that means like you can lose an election, you know you're going to lose two seats on the court, but then you can win the next election and get and get two additional seats back. Um, I think it would really lower the temperatures around these appointments, and you know when it comes time to vote, people won't just hold their nose and vote for. Uh, you know, narcissistic con men, uh, because, because Gorsuch, you know, um, I think it would transform our politics in really important ways, but it probably requires amending the the constitution. So, um, in, in the book, um, I recommend off, you know, this is again in fantasy land where Democrats control the entire government. Right. But I recommend offering a compromise to Republicans, you know, like help us amend the constitution to eliminate uh, lifetime tenure on the courts. Um, and it, you know uh, this is a problem that we all you know we can all agree is uh, is contributing to um, you know a, a terrible problem in our politics. So help us fix it, okay? They're going to say no. <laughs> uh, almost certainly, they're going to say no. Um, and at that point, I think Democrats have the right to add justices to the Supreme Court, like FDR wanted to do, um, to to sort of massively expand the federal judiciary at the appellate and district level. Um, as has been done in the past, you know.
1: Um, I think you mentioned the book that, that didn't go all that well for FDR when he tried it.
0: <laughs> no, no, and it was spiked by his own allies in Congress. Um, I, I think that there's a little more nuance to the story than most people understand. I think, um, you know, FDR wanted to add uh, at least five justices to the court, um, but by, by manipulating this law. Um, his allies in Congress were willing to go along with a plan that would have added what, one or three. Um, but they weren't willing to go along with with five or more. Um, so if, it's actually, it's funny, if FDR had been willing to compromise um, and just more lightly pack the court, <laughs> he probably could have gotten his way. Um, but the whole thing was moot anyway, because a couple of, of the justices on the court sort of come, started to change their minds about key elements of the New Deal um, and the need to pack the court from the perspective of, of, the, of the Roosevelt administration sort of disappeared. Um, but I think that what Democrats are going to find if they take power in 2021 and they don't have a court seat to fill, um, particularly not a, a seat that would uh, that change the partisan control of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. is that a lot of their initiatives are going to get smacked down by the Supreme Court. Um, and that eventually proved very frustrating, uh, I think, for the next Democratic president. But I, I also think there's a sort of there's a moral case for this, too, um, which is that Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. You know, If you go back and add up all the votes for the U.S. Senate since 1992— um, Democrats have won 30 million more votes for the U.S. Senate. So to me, the, you know, the American people have spoken very clearly. They want Democrats to staff the federal judi- judiciary, and they haven't been able to do so. And uh, even all of that probably would not have been enough for me to recommend this idea uh, had, had Republicans not done what they did with, with Merrick Garland. Because to me, you know, there's really no difference between stealing the swing seat on the Supreme Court and, and adding justices to the court. Um, they're, they're legally the same thing, right? They're both fully constitutional. Um, they're both massive violations of existing norms um, and Republicans struck first, you know, so I, I think that there has to be a response um, to the theft of, of that seat. Like there just has to be a response to it. Uh,
1: something else that you recommend in the book uh, are different uh, electoral reforms uh, such as rank choice voting, where um, you, uh, you can you can say oh, this is my first choice, this is my second choice, this is my third choice, and your votes are weighted uh, for the final tally. Uh, I usually see those kinds of proposals advocated by people who want to strengthen third parties, not so much by like people who want to strengthen one of the two major parties. Uh, what, what's your reasoning why Democrats would have uh, would be helped by reforms such as that?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think if you look at um, the way that we currently run elections for the House. Um, I mean, you've heard people talk about the the number of points that we need to win by in November to actually take the House back. Um, and so Democrats need to win the national popular vote for the House by anywhere from, I don't know, six to 11 points to actually take the chamber back, which is absurd when you think about it. Um, and the problem is not just the gerrymander that took place after 2010. The problem is that increasingly Democrats and Republicans live apart from one another. Um, and it's just very difficult to draw the district lines in a way that would create fair districts Um, and so I think that there's a real, uh, there's an urgency for the left to think about ways to change that system that would, that would benefit the left more broadly. Um, and so, but this is a piece of the book where, um, you're right, this reform would empower third and fourth parties. Um, I think, you know, a a majority of of the American people have consistently told pollsters that they want more than two choices when they walk into the voting booth. Um, and, so this is a reform that would strengthen the left more than it would strengthen strengthen the Democrats. Uh, it would make possible uh, a coalition government in the House um, that is, you know, Democrats would have to govern in conjunction with, I don't know, the Working Families Party or the Green Party or, or maybe a party that we, we can't really even imagine at this point um, because it's not, it's not possible under our current electoral rules. Um, and the way to sell that to Democrats is like, hey, you know, wouldn't it be more fun to to be part of a majority with the Working Families Party than than to stare up at at your Republican overlords for another two to four to six to eight years. Um, I I think if we don't do something to address the underlying structural deficit in the House, it's just like the Senate. You know, it's like we'll win sometimes, um, but we will lose more often than we win. And over the long term, um, losing both of these chambers to Republicans when we really should win, according to the the desires of the American people, is going to end up dragging American public policy to the right. Inexorably, you know, um, and so I think that we need to get serious uh, about about rethinking how we elect the House of Representatives.
1: Um, earlier in the book, um, you talk about the Constitution being a teardown. <laughs> that it's it's not even you know it's it's essentially an archaic, outdated document that doesn't reflect our politics for today. Uh, is, is that a practical? uh path for democrats and Progressives to say you know what let's let's have a big constitutional convention and let's just bring everyone in a room and just fix the stuff that just isn't working right you now why should we treat this like it's a there, there is an amendment process for a reason it's not meant to be fixed in stone let's 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 just get to work on fixing it
0: yeah no i mean i i think the consensus in my field in political science is, is pretty clear um that, you know, other countries are not using the American constitution as a model anymore for good reason. Um, which is that, you know, a it's too vague. Um, you know, you can read this thing on your lunch break and it doesn't, it doesn't spell out a lot of procedures that are actually really important um, it calls for advice and consent from the Senate but then it doesn't say how that happens you know it leaves it up to, to future policymakers to determine how the rules are to be implemented um, but'm I'm, I'm really opposed to this idea of an article 5 convention uh, where you know where the states can call a, a constitutional convention for a particular issue and then you know the fear is that it would turn into a runaway uh sort of rewrite of the constitution um i'm I'm concerned about that for a variety of reasons including you know like um again the procedures are pretty vague like how do we pick the people that write the constitution uh how are they be elected in a citizens united universe like i just don't trust that we're going to end up with the right people rewriting the constitution so the gimmick of the book is that we you know um almost everything that i recommend does not require amending the constitution um and that if we do all these things, uh, I think, A, the left will be in power more often than not. Uh, I think that we'll control the courts. And so that we can we can run a reversal of Citizens United um, through a liberal Supreme Court rather than trying to amend the Constitution, which is uh, functionally impossible unless the amendment itself is for something that would have, have no partisan impact whatsoever. So... The idea that we're going to amend the Constitution to get rid of Citizens United, I just it doesn't it doesn't seem realistic to me, because you have to get three quarters of the states on board, um, and there's 31 Republican leaning states, and they're not going to do it. Um, so, in a lot of ways, I think trying to to sort of uh, get out of the of the uh, of the problems that we're in politically in this country by amending the Constitution, I, I think is just going to lead to to disappointment and sadness and stasis. And so, I, I wrote this book to. To offer people a set of ideas about how we can fix some of these really difficult problems, without amending the Constitution, without rewriting the Constitution, um, simply by using um, the power that, that voters may give to Democrats the next time uh, that they're returned to unified control in DC, if that makes sense.
1: So, since you're not looking at uh, you know extra constitutional means, you're trying to work within the framework of the Constitution, but aggressively so, uh, and and not uh, being uh, differential to to norms and precedent. Uh, we're hearing so much say that Trump is breaking norms and and Trump is weakening uh, faith in democratic institutions and weakening democracy itself. Uh, do you hear folks um, say to you? And if so, what do you say in response? Uh, if Democrats go down this path too you're just going to be further eroding trust in democratic, um, uh, institutions and, you know, only, uh, only darkness leads from there.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, I think that that argument, you know, this is the argument you see in like, um, how democracies die, um, that, you know, the next time they're in power, Democrats need to kind of set about restoring some of these broken norms that the that Republicans, not just Trump, but Republicans over the last 10 years have really violated. And I, I find that argument un- unpersuasive because uh because of a couple of things. One, um, if you are going to try to restore like a norm that has been violated, uh, it requires the other side to understand that they violated the norm in the first place. Right. So when I read back on on the you know, the the taking of Merrick Garland's one, two, three, I don't see any recognition from Republicans that they actually violated a norm. Um, in fact they they publicly rationalized it as like. You know, uh, you know, they made up their own norm <laughs> that you can't appoint a, a Supreme Court justice in an election year, um, which is, you know, which is fantastical, uh, it's a misreading of American history. But Republicans, like, I think the real problem here is that Republicans don't uh, possess an understanding that, that what they have done is trash a bunch of norms that made it possible to govern the country um, peacefully, you know, uh, and the idea that we're gonna ride back into power and then and then resurrect those norms from the dead and that the other side will be like, oh, thank you. You know, like, thank you so much for, for returning us to sanity. I just, you know, like, I find that, I, I find that laughable. You know, like, I just don't think it's going to happen. What's going to happen is Democrats are going to come into power. They'll be like, okay, we can't eliminate the filibuster. Let's get Republicans to cooperate. Um, and then the Federalist and Fox News and, and all of these lunatics are going to paint everything that we do uh, as a national emergency, you know, like, uh, black-booted thugs from the UN are going to come and take your guns, whatever. You know, uh, I just don't think it's possible um, to restore norms with this group of Republicans in power. Um, the, The other thing is like, you know, there are some norms that obviously I think the Democrats should come into power and respect again like bipartisan oversight of the executive branch, like the president not calling for interference in ongoing FBI investigations or, or the inner workings of the DOJ. Um, you know, these are, these to me are not partisan issues and there's not any, you know, I don't think there's any real partisan advantage in acting the way that Trump is acting right now. Um, and so obviously I, I hope that those some of those norms are restored because they're really important. There are other norms like the filibuster um, or like the way, you know, like the internal rules of the House and the Senate which are really cumbersome uh, and really get in the way of policymaking. I don't think Democrats really have uh, any obligation to resurrect them. In fact, I think that they should continue to rethink how both the House and the Senate work uh, so they can actually get things done.
1: The book is It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics by David Farris, published by Melville House Publishing. Thanks much for being on the show.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me. This was fun.